You know what, you guys are pretty far away from me today. Kind of set you back. Do I spit? Is that the deal? You know I'm going to come out there anyway. If I do spit, I'll spit on you because I'm coming down there. All right, got a couple questions to get us going. Uh, You ever notice how language changes over the years? Are some of you going, yeah, I've noticed that, but who are you? Let me back up. My name is Rob Singleton. I'm the lead pastor of this brand new church, and we actually are going to launch in about six, seven months, so this is a launch team. That's a little bit about me, way too much probably. Now let's get back to the question. Have you noticed that language changes over the year? In fact, you can have one word, keep the word the same, but the meaning's completely different. When I was a kid, good meant good. And then Michael Jackson came along, and all of a sudden, bad meant good. Complete opposite. When I was a kid, a freak was just that, a sideshow weirdie, right? And now, did you know that it's a compliment like, girls would love to be called a freak. She's a freak. What does that mean? Don't play dumb with me. What does it mean? Is there a girl? <laughs> I was just about to say, anybody, any girl ever been called a freak? You're not going to raise your hand, obviously. That's going to seem a little bit arrogant. But that means, I guess that's the equivalent term of a hottie or whatever. So when I was a kid, calling a girl fat, F-A-T, was a no-no. Still is, by the way, if you're struggling with that. However, to call them fat, P-H-A-T, is good. Man, she's looking fat. I still think it's important with all these terms to make sure that you are within the generation that understands them when you use them. Because if you're not, you're going to end up with a fat lip, bad fat, or a black eye. Today we get a brand new series. It's four weeks long. It's called Vintage. And vintage is one of those words that has gang morphed over the years. The classic definition for this has everything to do with wine. It has to do with the quality and the year. Oh, that's a vintage, you know, 1971 bottle of wine. However, this is one of those words that, like I said, has morphed over the years. Today, it's far more likely to be used like the following. Here's sort of the second definition that that you see uh, in, uh, you know, Webster's or online dictionary. Representing what is best or most characteristic vintage of somebody or something. What is most authentic, the original, superior to all others. And that's kind of the definition we're going to be going on. We're certainly not going to be talking about wine and how that can save marriages. That ruins them. Now, you might have saw that Will Rutherford, by the way, was that great worship today? I love that. Let's give more. Very good worship. Very, very good worship. Even though Will Rutherford was using a Martin guitar, which I don't think are the best, I prefer Elliot's guitar, which happens to be a Taylor. However, Will might have it on me. He might be able to make a better case for his Martin because Martin used, any guitar buffs out here? Good, because I'm going to butcher this. Martin used a certain type of spruce that's apparently illegal to use now, way back in the early 1900s. It's a banned substance, okay? Not because it gets you high or gives you an advantage on the Tour de France. It's not that kind of banned substance. It's a spruce, and they want to protect those special spruce trees, and they were getting cut down so much you can't even use that. Well, spruce sounds, where's that, Martin? It's back there. The older a spruce top gets on a guitar, if it's solid, the more mellow and rich that it sounds. 
So you just get, I mean, if a guitar is 100 or 200, 300 years old, isn't that fascinating? All right, well, let me, let me try this. Uh, anybody looking for a good violin out there? Raise your hand quick, because I got one. You looking for a good violin? Well, would you like a Stradivarius? You ever heard of that? A Stradivarius. If you haven't heard of a Stradivarius, then I question your violin savvy. All right, because here's the deal. A Stradivarius, or Strad, if you're rad, if you want to call it that, is one of those violins, cellos, or other stringed instruments built by members of the Stradivari family, uh, particularly Antonio Stradivari. Hang with me, because some of you are going, wow, what does that do to anything? During the 17th and 18th centuries. You know what, when, uh, when I was young, I used to think 17th and 18th centuries meant the 19th uh, I meant the 1700s and 1800s, but when you hear 17th and 18th century, that means 1600s and 1700s. So a long time ago. You with me? This means yes. This means no. Well, big deal, yeah. Turns out that Antonio really knew what he was doing when it came to choosing the woods and assembling these things. They're quite good. He only made around 700 in his lifetime. Handmade. 670 of them are accounted for. About 30 of them they haven't found. Now, the last one sold about four years ago at auction for three and a half million dollars. So I'm gonna spend my life looking for those other 30 <laughs> Stradivarius. I'm gonna get them back in mint condition and, you know, retire for life. <coughs> so when it comes to violins, turns out it's hard to beat a vintage 17th century Stradivarius. Vintage is big with clothes, too. I mean, all of a sudden, it's kind of mixing in. Vintage has to do with years when it comes to clothes. Like, 1920s hats are in for girls now. Did you know that? Some of you guys are going, how do you know that, Pastor Rob? That's troublesome on many levels. 1960s clothes are in. Mixing and matching clothes or not matching clothes is in, which is good for me because I've never really matched. So now it's cool to, you know, plaid stripes, throw it all in there, and that's good. That's going to be a happy time as long as that lasts. But that, the clothes and stuff, like wines, that only refers to a period of time. So that's not really how we're using it. We're using the second definition, superior, best, original quality. Uh, and sometimes when they change something from the original, everybody gets disappointed and they know it's not good. You see that commercial? That old, how many of you remember that old Coke commercial? I'd like to give the world, or something like that. And that was, everybody loved that commercial. It's like one of the number one commercials of all time. But then about 20 years later, Coke had a brilliant idea of new Coke. How many of you ever tasted that? And then threw up? I mean, New Coke was horrible. It was awful. I don't know what, New is definitely bad there. And Coke <coughs> began losing money because of New Coke. And they scrambled. They got rid of the colors they used on New Coke. They got, every, got rid of every trace of it. They put cement shoes on the guy who invented it and buried him and dropped him in the Hudson River. And then they went back to the original Coke because people didn't want to change. They didn't think it was better. They thought it was worse. Go back to the original. That's vintage. That's superior. Well, today, and we're talking about this series about marriage, there's an, another twist on it. Today, and we kind of built this set to kind of mix in. Here's a granite top. Well, that's certainly not a throwback to, you know, decades and decades ago. And yet we've got kind of old-fashioned looking chairs, but a modern chair cover. We've got restored front on this because reclaimed woods and all are in. So what's in in decor and woods and furniture is to mix the modern with the vintage. Now, why is that important? Everybody look up here because you're struggling with why that's important. So let me tell you why that's important. Because a lot of people look at this book and they say, that's old stuff. 
They say a lot of the things written in that book, well, we've evolved. Well, we've progressed. Well, they didn't have the education back then, these prehistoric people, that we have now. And so these things don't apply. So really, if you want to have a, a general theme that we're going to look at in this whole series, we're going to look at does God's vintage rules about marriage and, and what God said and what he invented about love and relationships, does it work in a modern world? Does it work in a modern world? Now, some of you that have been Christ followers for years are going, of course it works. But others who are just kicking the tires and checking this out, you're not so sure, right? You don't know. You've probably seen some things and you go, I don't know how this applies. So, and I think that's a fair question. So let's just take a four-week honest look at it. We're going to look at vintage love, vintage relationships. We're going to apply it to today and we're going to see if this still works, if it's still relevant. Now, here's why we need to do this. Because the world's gonna say marriage and the whole idea of it traditionally is out of date, doesn't work. So marriage is being redefined, retooled, reshaped, repackaged, and then finally the end goal is that it is resold to you in a new, supposedly better form. Is that fair to say? Have you seen that? Marriage is redefined, marriage has been repackaged, marriage has been expanded to include all kinds of things. And then finally when it's all packaged up nice and cute in the new forms, all these are pushed back out, rolled back out to the public, say here's a new and improved form of marriage. So we're going to take a look at that too. We're going to take a look at all these new ideas and easier divorces and no faults and all these different things and say, has it gotten us better? Are we better? Are we worse? So for you note takers, here's the first thing you need to know. You, me, all human beings, you are designed by God. That's the first thing I want you to write down. Designed by God. You were designed by God. So if you like to put little letters in here, here's A under that. God shaped us and formed us literally. Yes, that old-fashioned idea says it's true in the Bible. God said, I actually knew you in your mother's womb, all of you. I shaped you and I formed you and I gave you gifts and abilities for a, for a specific purpose, to live out in my kingdom. You want biblical support? Write down Jeremiah 1.5. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. Did you catch that? And by the way, that's not God just talking to Jeremiah. That's not God saying, well, I knew Jeremiah in the womb. Some of you I lost track of, though. I'm not looking around, it looks like God might have lost track of some of you, but we'll assume that he knew us all, all right? I knew you in the womb, I formed you in the womb, before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. Do you believe that about God? That maybe your life is not so random? That maybe you didn't crawl out of some primordial soup and then evolve into who you are randomly, accidentally, that maybe there's a plan for you? A vintage, authentic, superior plan for you? You, Jeremiah, prophet to the nations, that's what I had in mind for you. And he lived that out, what God had for him. So, listen, before the prophet Jeremiah was born, the Lord had already called him and was shaping him and preparing him for a very significant ministry, which he lived out. The apostle Paul, some say the greatest Christian of all time, he made a similar claim about being ordained even while still in his mother's womb. What's unusual about that? As Paul's saying, even in the womb, you had a plan for me and it was ordained. Well, Paul spent a lot of his adult life persecuting Christians. So is that included in that? No, that, what's included in that is that God says, I can bring good out of even bad. So is there somebody, is there a force out there trying to ruin God's vintage perfect plans for your life? Yeah, we're gonna see today that there is. See, the counterfeit designer, he's gonna take what God plans. Listen, did you know something Satan can't create? That may be a shock to some of you. I mean, there's this idea out there, if you believe in the spiritual world, that God and Satan are kind of equal, battling back and forth with pretty much equal strengths, which is not really biblical theology. That, I call that Star Wars theology, but it's not in the Bible, and it's not an equal deal. Satan can't bring something out of nothing. Only God can do that. 
So what Satan does is counterfeit. Satan takes what God creates and he tweaks it and then repackages it and softens it up a little bit so it's more palatable and then presents it out there and it'll tear your life apart. It's never better, it's always worse. Remember that, we're gonna visit that again. It's very important that you know that. But in Galatians 1.15, Paul says even everything bad, God knew about it, he ordained. Now, Psalms 139 I like because that's talking about all of us. This isn't just Jeremiah or Paul, this is all of us. Psalm 139 tells us that the Lord, it's the Lord who puts man together, women together in the womb of their mother and that all our days are actually numbered and ordained by God. Every breath you take, everything you think, everything you say and do, all the days of your life, including the day you die. Letter B, then God wrote an owner's manual. So God didn't just shape us and create us and form us, he gave us an owner's manual. And like most owner's manuals, they probably sit in the glove box of your car and you never read it, right? And so if you don't read the owner's manual of your car and you don't do maintenance on your car, it's probably not gonna last as long as it could have. Is that fair to say? I know it's fair to say with me because I've ruined a lot of cars. Now I pay a little bit more attention to what I do with my car so it'll last. If you pay attention to the way God said to live, then you'll thrive spiritually. If you don't, then you're gonna listen to another designer. And gang, what Satan gives you is not designed to make you last and thrive. It's designed to tear you apart and tear you down. So this is the owner's manual. And who wrote the owner's manual? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Gang, it's one of the most important verses in the Bible because it tells you that the word of God is inspired. It's actually God who wrote it through men, but he wrote it through the Holy Spirit. So it's our owner's manual. Gang, there's a lot of good books on marriage. I've taught based on a lot of books, but there's only one great flawless book on marriage and on relationships, and that's this one, because it's perfect. So we follow it, we're gonna have the best possible relationship. There's a lot of good Christian books on marriage, but they're basically getting what they have from the word of God, so go right to the source. Now listen, before we move on from 2 Timothy 3.16, which some of you are like, okay, got it, God wrote the Bible. Let me tell you what people do with this. Let me tell you how even some so-called theologians reshape this verse. It's very dangerous. It's very wrong. First, I need to point out that when it says all scriptures breathed out, that all is a very interesting word in the Greek. You know how it's translated? All, exactly. It's not changed at all. It means every little part of it. There are critics, and even I found a handful of commentators who say this verse should be rendered like this. Listen closely. All scripture which is inspired of God is profitable for doctrine. Did you catch that? I don't get to, I mean, what's the difference, Pastor? You just said the same thing. No, I didn't. All scripture which is by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. Well, what this says is the implication is that not all scripture is inspired. All the scripture that happens to be inspired within the book, some of it that's inspired, that's profitable. The parts that aren't inspired aren't profitable. Now look up here again. Who decides what's inspired and what's not? Who makes that decision? Well, here's a huge problem, gang. If you wanna live your life a certain way outside of God's will, chances are you're gonna say that part that tells me I shouldn't do what I wanna do is not inspired. And that's a slippery slope. And that's what the false designer does. He's gonna try and repackage things and have you pick and choose. Pretty soon you've picked and chosen all God's word, completely torn it apart. So we have to know, first of all, that all scripture's inspired. The whole book's inspired, beginning to end, and it's all profitable because it's all inspired. That's the literal translation of the verse. That's not the one that uses exegetical gymnastics. So let's talk about that slippery slope for just a moment. You guys gotta get this so we can build the next few weeks on this. 
Let's take some recent developments in our culture alone. Now listen, I'm going to tell you flat out, some of these things I say are going to offend you, and I enjoy that. I don't know why it's the way God shaped me. Seriously, some of these things are a little bit sensitive, but I want to tell you, I want you to see clearly, offensive or not, I'm going to stick to God's word, and you're going to see how he reshaped three specific areas. The Bible makes it clear over and over again that adultery is a sin. It's not nebulous, gang. It's not like you read a few verses and you go, you know, adultery seems like it could be bad and it could be good, given certain circumstances. Here I see that God favors. No, there's none of that in the Bible. It's just bad. It's obvious. A five-year-old can see it if they know what it is. But some people really, really, men mostly, really, really want to fool around in a marriage on their spouse. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the scriptures that say about adultery? Well, I'll just give you a hint and those words fool around. Just think about that a moment and see if you can catch it. I'll keep going. Those who can't seem to keep their pants on, told you I'd be blunt, begin with softening the word up a bit. Adultery is a harsh word. Let's replace it. How about affair? That's nice. That's a nice word. It's not such a bad word. Sounds good. Sounds kind of like an amusement park adventure, doesn't it? To me it does, I'm going to a fair where I get cotton candy, maybe I'll ride the merry-go-round, all innocent stuff, really. But it doesn't sound like the word adultery. Let's get rid of that word because that's so cold and bad sounding. But the word affair is not in scripture at all. Neither is the phrase fool around. But you know, it sounds not so bad. So people use that phrase. Hey, did you hear that so-and-so was fooling around on their wife? Gang, we fool around when we play gestures or charades or tell knock-knock jokes. That's fooling around. Let me tell you what an adulterer does. An adulterer, here's the result of adultery. They crush their spouse's trust and heart into oblivion. They destroy the confidence and security of their kids, if they've got kids. They separate friends and blow families completely apart. That's the result of that real sin. But when you call it an affair, then a guy who's maybe committing adultery can simply say to the marriage counselor, I'm just trying to be happy. You wouldn't forsake me that, would you? Do you see what we're doing there? It's gymnastics with the words. All right, another redefining moment comes with those who boldly proclaim today that there's not one thing in the Bible condemning homosexuality. Now listen, I'm not separating these sins out as better or worse. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You ever heard that verse? That means every single person on earth is, is, is a sinner. And I don't like when our society, when Christians pull certain sins out and go, here's the bad ones and here's the good. Because, first of all, it's crazy. Baptists come up with don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. I don't even think half that's a sin. So they come up with their little make-believe sins that are bad, and then they have other things in their life that are clearly sin, like gossip or overeating. You know, they'll pick on people that get drunk, but they won't pick on on themselves for overeating. I know pastors out there on TV, I'm not going to pick on anybody specifically, but they're huge. And so clearly they're sitting in the overeating category, but they just pick and choose. You don't pick and choose. But let me tell you what culture's done with this. Say there's not really one passage in the Bible condemning hopes of sexuality. That's actually right. There isn't one thing. There's at least 12. There's a lot of passages in the Bible. But some really, really, really favor this lifestyle. So once again, here we go with the pattern. Number one, soften it up. So they hijack a word about 80 years ago. Homosexuality sounds like a scientific term. That's really cold. That's, really, that's not going to work for us. Let's take gay. Let's take gay. 
I mean, if you're under 30 years old, you've never used it any different way or heard it any different way. The original use of the word was to describe somebody who's jovial, happy, and all around easygoing. Now, that sounds a whole lot better, doesn't it? They hijacked a word. Next, redefine what a true loving couple, even in Scripture, really is. Let's try and take some other friendships and twist them. For this, the friendship of King David and the Prince Jonathan, Saul's son, gets morphed into a homosexual relationship. Did you know that? Nothing at all to, to evidence that in the Bible, but it sounds good. And in fact, some say that even Jesus is said to have had more than a friendship with some of his disciples. Sick, yes, but that's how the game is played, in two steps. One more, got real quiet on that one. How about lying? Everybody's easy going now. I don't have a problem with lying. I bet you do, you liar. <laughs> Here it is. This one, like adultery, it even makes the top 10. The ninth commandment tells us, do not bear false witness. I don't do that, I lie, but I don't do that. That's lying. That's saying don't lie. Now, lying sounds pretty bad. No one trusts a constant liar. In fact, somebody who lies all the time, we call them a pathological liar. You're not going to trust them at all. But what about the individual who only tells little white lies? What is that? First, take the big lie and shrink it down to small size. Then take the color that's often associated with purity, and now it's little and pure. A little white lie is not bad, it's actually good. See what they're doing? So really soften it up. Next, redefine. Instead of all non-truths we utter being called what they are, which is a lie, let's put them on a scale of one to 10. 10 being worst, or a pathological liar. And one, not even being a real little white lie, not being a lie at all. A one is then redefined as JK, just joking, just kidding. You ever heard that? Hey, you lied to me. What? No, I didn't, I was just joking. You ever heard that? I wasn't lying, I was just kidding around, man, take a joke. But what you said is not true. Man, he's up. What I said was a joke. Can't you laugh? But it's still a lie. So you see how we did? We've softened up, we've redefined. You guys starting to get it? Because we can't go all day with this. We've got to move on. By the faces, I, I don't have confidence. I don't have it, but I'm going to move on anyway, because I think you guys will catch up. Watch this, gang. It's the same thing with marriage. It's the same thing with marriage. How far back do we need to go to see the real thing? The vintage idea that God had. Well, we gotta go all the way back to the beginning. The book of beginnings, Genesis. So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Genesis. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, everybody stand to your feet. You can turn to that and have that in front of you. And I'm going to read this for you. In honor of God's word, I'm going to read this for you. I want you to really think about what I'm reading. Here we are talking about paradise and the garden and everything, and marriage comes into play in just a moment. And I'm going to have you sit down when I'm done with this, and then I'm going to have you stand back up. I might even have you do jumping jacks. We'll see how far you'll go with this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, there must have been thousands, and they were good to eat, paradise fruit. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So how many trees can you not eat of? One. For in the day that you eat, plain and simple, you'll surely die. So that's not complicated, is it? That's not nebulous. That's not foggy. I love you. Going to give you a lot of options out there. Only one thing you can't do. Don't do that, because here's what will happen if you do. Pretty clear. Sit down. All right. Now, have you ever wondered this? Why would God put in the garden a tree from which Adam and Eve, with good fruit on it, were not to eat? 
That just seems like he's tempting them, doesn't it? Well, I thought about this, and I want you to hear this out. It's a very, very good reason. God, God had to put that there. But go figure, How, how's that, Pastor? Because if you don't have that one choice, and think about it, it's so very, very small, one tree. If you don't have that, you have robots. And it's the Garden of Eden, not the Garden of Stepford. He didn't want robots. He wanted people that could choose to love him. God desired a loving relationship with man. True love is only built on choice. Have you ever thought about that? Therefore, in placing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, God was essentially saying to man, I love it this way, so listen close. I love you, I want to bless you, nourish you, and take care of you. That's my desire. But if you want to see this relationship go south, if you want to see it destroyed, if you want to turn your back on me, I must provide this opportunity. You got to have the option of doing that. I don't want to make you follow me. All you have to do if you want to mess this up, Adam, to end our relationship is eat from that tree. I can't make it any more simple. I hope you never do. You don't, we're going to get along great. And this is going to be paradise. You do, it's all over. So God creates man and a woman and places them in this perfect world with only one negative choice even possible in order to keep it real. And what happens next is the pattern that we've just been talking about. The pattern gets started here. Along comes Satan in the form of a serpent and he starts the process. So let's follow it from the very beginning. What's first? The softening up. God said, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. We just read that, remember that? Well, what happened when they ate of it? I don't remember Adam going, listen, I was, he didn't just, he didn't keel over when he ate it. Well, he, he did shortly after, 900 years later. But guess what? Adam wasn't designed or built to die ever. He had that glorified body that every believer will get one day when they see Jesus. He already had it. He was designed to last forever. Sin and decay and disease entered. And it took a long time because it was brand new, but eventually it brought about the death that it'll bring. So he started dying the moment he ate the fruit. Now, Satan rewarded this. He softens it up in the following chapters. Chapter three, verses four through five. The serpent said to the woman, you're not gonna die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. You'll be like God, you'll know good and evil. Not only is he softening up, he's saying God's holding out. This gets way better than that. Satan takes the death clause and changes it to a God promotion. That's quite a leap, isn't it? Take some fancy talk for that. You won't die, you'll be elevated. So the word death is replaced with divinity. And number two, then the redefining comes in. Don't miss this. Here's how this thing is going to go. Satan's talking to Eve. God isn't good like he's been leading you to believe. He's not good at all, he's bad. He's bad. He's holding out on you. He knows that the power of the knowledge of good and evil is all that stands between you and him. That's it. As soon as you know it, you all of a sudden get power. Real big power. Power like his. You can create a world of your own. Why Eve fell for that? I don't know. But you gotta remember, they'd never seen sin. So all that she heard was, as good as this is, there's something better behind the curtain. And all you gotta do is the one thing you're not supposed to do to roll back the curtain. That's true. You do the one thing you're not supposed to do, the curtain will be rolled back, but what's behind it, if you ever saw Let's Make a Deal, sometimes it's a donkey, right? Sometimes it's not that good. Eat the fruit, you'll be like God yourself. Well, you know the outcome of that. Satan is repackaging of the story. It sounded better than paradise to the first man and woman. So they traded the vintage relationship and vintage paradise for a cheap counterfeit and immediately regretted it. 
And before it was over, gang, they not only lost paradise, but also the face-to-face fellowship they had with God. They used to walk in the garden with God. And now they were banned from that. And so you enter prayer and you enter the Holy Spirit. You enter not being able to see God and be with him face-to-face. Only a selected few, Moses, Abraham, and that's it. It's not paradise. It's a complete rip-off from the vintage plan of the beginning. So they lost something else too. Don't miss this. They lost the perfect marriage. It's only been one perfect relationship and one perfect marriage. That was Adam and Eve. And then they were the first dysfunctional marriage as well. Marriage God's way was simple and beautiful. Genesis 2, 22 through 25. I want you to stand up again. This is the part I want you to read. I don't want you to read all the bad stuff about Satan. But here this is. Verse 22. And the rib that God Lord took out from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now there are some patterns for community and how marriage should work right here, but a lot of people don't like it. They don't like what they read here. Therefore a man shall follow this pattern. Leave their father and mother and hold fast to their wife. And the two shall become one flesh because she was taken out of man. They'll spiritually bond back together again when they're married. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Okay? Guys, are you with me on this? That's why that's paradise. It's one of the main reasons. And now it's just different. There's one guy in the very back going like this, okay? So one honest guy. I won't tell you who it is, but his initials are Kendall. Now, look again at verses 24 and 25. They tell us how the marriage process gets off on the best footing. And I'll say this and then we can sit down. Therefore, a man and father shall follow this. Leave your father and mother Therefore, a man shall do this. Leave your father and mother. Hold fast to your wife. They'll become one flesh, and the man and the wife will live in peace and harmony, and, and, and sin won't enter the picture. Then sin enters the picture. You guys can be seated. Let me break it down for you. When sin enters the picture, you got the good, and then you got the bad. But I want you to see how it could remain good, even with sin in the picture. Verse 23. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's a Hebrew idiom. That's what that is. Meaning, you are my exact counterpart. You are my exact counterpart. Woman. God is a triune being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because he made us in his image, man is triune as as well. Some of you going, man and wife, that's two, that's not three. Pastor, can you not add? Stay with me. Our body, number one. Our body is the physical part that relates to the material world around us. Got it? I mean, this is how we touch, senses, all this. This is how we like. You know, if you get materialistic, it's your physical self that's liking that. All right? If you want a brand new Lamborghini, it's not your spirit drifting in there to drive it, right? It's you. You want to touch the steering You want to feel it. Number two, our soul speaks of our mind and emotions, and that relates to the people around us, okay? Your mind and your emotions, when the, body, when the Bible talks about the soul, that's your mind and your emotions relating to each other. And then finally, our spirit is the part of us that relates to God, and that part will live forever. So you actually, being created in God's image, have those three parts within you. But as soon as sin came into the picture, they're marred. And now Satan's gonna come in and say, it's okay, it's okay, let's just redefine this thing and tweak it, it'll be better. And it's been worse ever since. I believe it was a match of body, soul, and spirit, and it comes to realize that there's limits on bone, flesh, and flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. That's what I think it means. And I believe the same can be true for us today. With regard to their body, listen closely. There must be a physical attraction between you and the one you marry. Let me see. Couples, married people, raise your hands. 
Okay, it's debatable in some cases. Secondly, with regard to the soul, one must be able to communicate on the same, watch this, wavelength as the one he or she marries. Does that make sense? Want to communicate on the same wavelength? You're completely from different planets here. You're not, it's not going to work. Thirdly, with regard to the spirit, one's love for the Lord, commitment to the Lord, involvement with the Lord must equal that of the one he or she marries. So you see how marriage could work best if all three of them are there? Now here's what happens in most cases. Most couples today only go for two out of three. A lot of couples go for one out of three. There's even some couples who say, I don't need any of them. Now let me tell you what happens when you trade it in for two out of three, one out of three or none. Here's the redefining and softening we talked about earlier. So I'll give you some scenarios. Somebody might say, I feel a spark for her romantically. And she has that same feeling for me. Spiritually, we both love the Lord, go to Bible study, we pray together. But the soul, she likes shopping, I like backpacking. We're really different on that. She likes to talk, I don't. But we can make this work. So let me say this, yes you can, you can make that one work. But it's gonna take a lot of work, okay? Because it's, it's not a complete match in there. Not saying that one's gonna fail, but you've set yourself up for one that's not vintage, it's not exactly what God says. Next, with regard to the soul. We're best friends, she says. We talk by the hour and love just hanging out with each other and spiritually, we both love the Lord and are committed to the kingdom, but physically, I can't explain it, but he doesn't do much for me. Don't raise your hand if that's you. <laughs> that would hurt. Michelle, keep your hands down. I can't explain it, but he doesn't do much for me. I will say this, guys, let me see the married guys. I've noticed this about our church. Yeah, you, most of you are overmarried. I do see that. Think about it, you'll realize it's true. Most of you overmarried. This relationship can work, the second scenario. But again, you know what? It's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna take a lot of work. You know what could happen bad in that scenario? I wasn't planning on saying that, but let's just say, if you set yourself up for that and there's no spark, no physical attraction there, you got two out of three, someone's gonna come along and fire that spark later on. And then that's gonna be a problem and maybe they have the other two sparks. And all of a sudden, you're gonna trick yourself or lie to yourself and say, that's a better match. Oh, I don't think that would happen, Pastor, really? Don't we see that all the time? That's the way Hollywood marries and remarries. Next, we've got the romance thing wired, he says, but we're also, we are also uh, buddies and friends, but spiritually, I wanna be a missionary and she's content going to church only Easter and Christmas, Christmas and Easter. Do you see a problem there? This is the worst one. This relationship is headed for hardship because due to different commitment levels spiritually, you're each gonna view life from a different lens. The most important lens of all is completely different, it's completely foreign to you. These marriages end the most quickly. Body, soul, and spirit. And it's amazing to me how many couples connect to one out of three, two out of three, but not three out of three. And then they wonder, why are we having issues here? They're trading a vintage marriage, the original thing, for a cheap imitation, sure to disappoint. Instead, we should, now write this down, accept no counterfeits. Accept no counterfeits. Don't let the world water down or redefine marriage. Don't accept their counterfeits of the real thing, because ultimately, you know who's behind the counterfeits? Let me read you a little blurb about what Satan is. 
2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul said, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's not an angel of light, but he disguises himself as an angel of light. Well, why would you do that? Because angels of light, who wouldn't want an angel to come minister to them? Okay? You're, but you don't want Chucky, you know, a little uh, insane clown with a knife coming, right? Chucky's my special little demon. He helps me. No, I don't want that freak anywhere near. But an angel, a nice angel of light coming to me, we like that. But what if the angel of light looks good but isn't good? This is one of Satan's greatest tools, gang. He can mimic the things of God so close that you and I, if we're not in touch with the owner's manual, we don't know it pretty good, we can't tell the difference. Can't tell the difference. Satan is the great counterfeiter, and as such, there are a couple things you and I should be aware of about him. A, the designer is flawed. He's flawed as a designer. Satan is a created being and a flawed one now that he has rebelled against God. You know, he was created perfect. There was nothing bad in him. And then he looked at God, and sin entered the picture when he looked at God, looked at how terrific he was, and to his perception, it looked like, I can do that. And right there, sin entered the universe. Now, that gets into all kinds of theological discussions. It gets us a little bit off track. So let's stay with this in marriage. Now, Adam comes along. He's given one thing he can't do. Eve's given one thing they can't do. But they take the fruit of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, and they eat it. Now that Adam sinned, we're flawed. We're born in sin. And Romans 5.19 says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Did you catch that? Well, how's that work? That doesn't sound fair, Pastor Rob. Adam messes up and I'm a sinner? Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. Well, let any one of us spend 24 hours with you and we'll help you confirm it. I've, never, I've met people that actually say, I'm pretty good, I actually don't sin. I'm going, well, you're sinning right there. You're deceiving yourselves. First John says that if any man thinks he's not a sinner, he's a liar, deceiving only themselves. Nobody else around you, by the way, just yourself. Romans 5.19. So the designer's flawed. B, the design is therefore flawed. Anything he designs, anything designed by Satan with that stamp on it is messed up somehow. Listen, again, Satan can't create, so he distorts only what God's created. Let me give you a couple examples so you don't miss this. God created grapes. God even blesses the wine in the Bible. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Wine's not bad. Some of you Baptists are struggling, get ready to have a heart attack. Hang in there. Wine's not bad. The Bible doesn't condemn it. Being drunk with wine is bad. That's a sin. So, who distorted it? Who softened it? Who, who redefined it? We did. We did. We made it bad. God created sex. It's right there in the Garden of Eden. He said, be fruitful and multiply. There's no way to do that without sex, so God created it in the boundaries of a loving husband and wife, man and, and female, male and female relationship. It can be very good. Outside of that, what have we done with sex? We've redefined it. We distorted it into something that's not good like the original. Polygamy, many wives, same-sex marriages, Pedophilia, all these different things, BCL, all these twisted things with sex that ruin and even kill. But sex isn't bad. The vintage, original design is still best. We take it, we tweak it, and it's worse. By the way, John 10.10 is a unique verse. You need to write this down. It's one of my favorite verses in all Scripture because it mentions both designers as well as their designs in one verse. The thief, Satan, 
He comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. So he's a thief, he's a robber, he's a faulty designer, and what's his handiwork? What's his design? Theft, he'll steal from you, he'll rob you of your joy, he'll eventually kill you, he'll destroy everything in your life. That's his product. That's what this faulty designer designs. I, Jesus says, I came that they might have life. I, the perfect designer, give them eternal life, and the life even starting here on earth, they can have joyfully overflowing and abundantly. The one brings death, the one brings life. Which designer do you want to follow? Some of you might be thinking right now this morning, man, is there any hope? Yes, there is. Here's what we need to do. We need to follow the right designer. We need to be restored to a vintage condition. That's the last thing I have today, Roman numeral three, it's restoration. Now I'm gonna read a long passage to you in the message, I like it best, it's Titus three, three through eight. Listen carefully, I'm not gonna have you stand, just listen to this. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, that's what you gotta love about the message. Dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, talking about Jesus here, he saved us from all of that. It was all his doing. So you see vintage, then you see us messing up vintage through sin, and then you see him saving us. There's a whole process talked about here, cleaning us up. It was all his doing, we had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath, and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives. And there's, one, and there's more life to come, an eternal life, an eternity of life. You can count on this. I found three things in that verse. We'll end with this. A, let Christ clean you up. It begins there. If you want to know his way and his designs, let him clean you up. That's called salvation. He took his perfect sinless life and offered it in your place and my place on the cross, shed his perfect innocent blood so that if you trust in him, you can begin the restoration process. If you don't do that, everything else I say is a moot point. So it starts with salvation. By the way, remember Romans 5.19, I shared it a moment ago? By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Well, that's just half the story. The rest of the verse goes on to say, so by the one man's obedience, the many would be made righteous. The one man is Adam. He messed it all up. The other man's righteousness is Jesus. He restores it all if you put your trust in him. Let her be. Clean up your relationship with him, then with your spouse, then with your friends. Romans 5.18 says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So begin to see him clean up other relationships in your life. So if you can clean up all the relationships in your life, even and especially your marriage, and I don't care how bad it is. It's funny, when I did a lot of the marriage counseling, and I'm doing it again in Impact Church as we get this going, I always talk to people who say, you don't know our marriage, we're too far gone, it can't be saved. Gang, I've seen marriages where there was adultery, drug abuse, and every which thing, and I've seen people in situations that bad become marriage counselors and marriage mentors. He can restore any marriage as long as you can find forgiveness through him for your spouse and each other. In fact, some of those, those stories end up being the most powerful testimony. It's up to you. And C, keep your life in mint condition. Some of you, like me, are what I call reverse learners. Sometimes I'll really click with what some, how something works and what it is by learning how it doesn't work. Anybody like that? Can you just raise your hand for my sake? Thanks, good. No, Pastor, that's weird. 
Well, then there were three hands, so you three, listen up. You first learn what it is and, and what would never work, and it helps you with what will work. So that's what I'd like us all to do now with this idea of real and authentic love. I'm going to do a little, little, little project with you guys, a little experiment. You want to know if God's vintage love and his old, old, ancient ways still work? I mean, obviously, if we continue with this series, it's not going to do you any good if you're going, it's dated and it doesn't work. It's just not good. So let's just test the theory. Test it many ways. Well, let's start with this. I don't know if it's still relevant in the modern world. I don't know if mankind has actually come up with a better version than the others, than, than God's, than, than being others-focused and sacrificial and the love that the Bible talks about. Here's how you do it. Simply imagine a world without it. Take a look. I guarantee to some of you it may sound like nothing more than a, a cheesy bumper sticker slogan. You've probably heard it a million times, but the Bible tells us the following is true. Love is not love unless you give it away. Love is not love until you give it away. Now I want you to hold that thought. I want to end with that. That's the key for the rest of the series. Held within yourself, it does nothing. When you give it away, it becomes powerful. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the work you're doing here at Impact Church. Lord, I pray for marriages in this series. It's the backbone and the foundation of our whole culture and our whole society. Return marriages, at least, Father, through this church, through impact, to impactful marriages built on you, built on vintage love, and built on your vintage ideas, your original timeless ideas that still work for today. And God, let us who are far from you, let us come near to your bride, to your ideals, Lord, and and God, let us believe once again that you're still relevant and you can still change lives, Lord. And I pray that it won't just be a message on Sundays, but this whole church and everybody in here will be a light unto others in this community and beyond. Father, begin a work in this very first message in the series. Help us to bring other couples and really see the church grow through this, not just numerically, but as families and as marriages. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. See you next week.